right, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Hour number three of the show. I am the Pete of the show. And uh, just a heads up, yes, they're all out of the barbecue at the 91st Annual Mallard Creek Barbecue. All the queue is gone. There are still some politicians here, so if you want to talk to them... Uh, Make your way down here, but first let's let's uh, let's actually talk to Ben Weingarten from Real Clear Investigations about ESG and uh, uh, a project that Real Clear Investigations has launched now, uh, which I think is uh, perfectly timed and well needed right now. Ben, welcome to the program. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm well, and it's always a pleasure. Absolutely. So uh, you wrote in uh, up at RealClearInvestigations.com. Businesses across the economy are wading into politics largely in a progressive direction. Um, And uh, you say, in recent years, corporate America's political activism um, has kind of has been ramped up, and it's consistent with an organization called the Business Roundtable and their redefinition of the purpose of a corporation. So let's start... Let's start there. What is this business roundtable, and what did they do with this redefinition of the purpose of a corporation? Well, the business roundtable is a coalition of around 200 of the CEOs of America's and really the globe's largest and most powerful corporations across a whole slew of sectors. So it's a pretty influential coalition. And back in 2019, I believe it was 180 or so signatories signed on to this letter redefining the purpose of a corporation. The purpose of the corporation as the business roundtable understood it and defined it and really as has been understood in capital markets and in capitalism in general has been to maximize return for shareholders historically for the owners of the companies. What the Business Roundtable did was they said that actually the idea of a corporation was to maximize returns for a whole variety of stakeholders up to and including society itself. So narrowly they would have said equity holders, shareholders, and then also our suppliers and various other individuals and groups that every company interacts with on a daily basis. But this became a far broader definition, and when it comes to society itself, what I'm getting at there and how it's manifested itself has been in supporting a whole slew of policies that on their face, and I think in practice in many instances, have almost nothing to do with the top and bottom lines of these companies. And so when companies are pulled in many directions beyond just generating the greatest return for their shareholders, making the best widget at the lowest price and serving their customers, Obviously, that ultimately does a disservice to shareholders, and that's where we are right now in this blowback that we are seeing against corporations' embrace of ESG, so-called environmental, social, and governance principles, which puts corporations in a position where they are acting like political actors, but outside the regular political process. What of the argument that, hey, they're just responding to market forces, right? That uh, especially the younger generation, uh, they want companies that have a, uh, a good moral posture towards the issues that uh, these younger kids agree with. And that's what they want. They want to put their money where their philosophy is. What, what of that argument? 
Sure. Well, certain corporations may make that argument. They're obviously entitled to, I guess, if they wish, undermine the equity holders in the company to the extent they support policies that ultimately uh, undermine their businesses. Uh, but where it becomes a little bit more nefarious, for example, is when you have companies that are also lobbying for regulations consistent with ESG that actually will end up supporting their top and bottom lines. And so we speak, for example, to the fact that Michael Bloomberg, perfect example, is not only, of course, the eponymous owner, founder of Bloomberg, the kind of preeminent financial news and data provider, uh, but Bloomberg sits atop several quasi-governmental and corporate organizations that have pushed very hard against traditional energy usage and towards a quote-unquote net zero world. They are behind pushing some of the regulations both at home and abroad aimed at curtailing the use of fossil fuels and the development of our energy sources. Those regulations, one of them, has, is being considered right now by the SEC, its proposed rule on climate disclosures, and that would require essentially every corporation to report on their greenhouse gas emissions, of course at huge cost to those corporations. Where will they report those numbers to comply with the regulations? Well, they'll report it on Bloomberg. Bloomberg has positioned itself as the premier purveyor of climate-related disclosure information, not to mention the fact that, of course, Bloomberg reports on the doings of all these companies. So there you see it's kind of a heads-I-win, tells-you-lose paradigm that they've set up, and we could likely find this across a whole slew of industries. But beyond that, there's also investigations now of collusive behavior among companies to essentially discriminate against American industries, which disadvantages not only the shareholders, but the, but the country itself. And so there's a probe right now that's being undertaken by around 19 state attorneys generals into this collusive behavior that's alleged primarily by financial institutions who the state attorneys generals essentially are arguing are discriminating against energy companies in who they lend with, lend to, and who they do business with. So when it becomes not just a business decision, but a business decision with a nexus to government action, sort of like we're seeing with big tech, that takes it out of the realm of mere capitalist actors acting freely in the marketplace. I find one of the most offensive parts of the ESG uh, issue is that these, uh, these institutions are not even playing with their own money, you know? Uh, they're playing with, with my money or, or uh, pension money from state government employees, that sort of thing. It, it, they're, they're pressuring companies, and the only reason they have the leverage they have is because they're managing somebody else's money to do it. Is there a way to get at that? Yeah, so we've seen, and what you're getting at is one of the important points of this project. We focus on the big three so-called asset managers, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, who you, me, many of your listeners probably have you know, some exposure to via you know, 401ks or, to your point, pension funds or beyond that are invested in a BlackRock investment vehicle or a Vanguard investment vehicle. These three collectively hold about 20% on average of the shares in any given major corporation, publicly traded corporation. 
And consequently, that gives them huge leverage over these companies, and they've used that leverage to push for ESG-tied, or really in many instances, woke shareholder proposals, uh, pushing internal policies that are consistent with the woke agenda, pushing for boards of directors who tow the woke line, and beyond, not to mention, of course, Black, BlackRock can say that we want to divest from a particular sector, and so that would disadvantage hugely companies in the marketplace. So they have all these levers that they can pull, to your point, using money that you've invested in them unwittingly because it's not your vote, it's their vote on your behalf, and that gives them substantial, massive power. And that's one of the things we wanted to expose in this project was just that regardless of what you think about the positions of many of these corporations and the asset managers themselves, you ought to know as a consumer and really as an American that your dollars can unwittingly be put towards causes that you may have no affinity for whatsoever. And these aren't just like some esoteric types of issues. These are things like guns, abortion, immigration, voting rights, criminal justice. Like these are hot button issues that people get pretty passionate about, even if they're not funding it in any way, shape, or form, let alone tell them, hey, yeah, your money's going to fund your opponent's position. <laughs> That's, uh, so what, let me ask it this way. What can people do? Yep. So we've seen, as I noted, a, a pushback at the state level to try to pull, for example, public funds out of any financial services companies that are dev dev devotees of the ESG agenda. So BlackRock has had billions of dollars pulled out of public dollars pulled out of it. Uh, beyond that, we've also seen, for example, in Florida, Governor DeSantis threatening to, and in some instances, like when it comes to Disney, for example, taking away government-granted privileges that these companies have taken advantage of when they do take positions on these issues. For example, like the legislation in Florida, uh, barring indoctrination in schools and radical gender ideology, uh, that those companies will no longer get government-granted privileges. I think you could see that applied on a massive scale, on top of the fact that, of course, you have a House and maybe a Senate as well, which to the extent they go Republican, there seems to be a lot of ferment building around pursuing the SEC and other regulatory agencies push for ESG. And then beyond that, maybe kind of the nuclear option here, or one of the nuclear options here, uh, although maybe not that nuclear, would be to put on the books regulations, rules and regulations at the state or federal level levels uh, that basically bar viewpoint discrimination among businesses, because it's not just as if businesses are acting neutrally here. They're acting in a clearly affirmative manner towards one particular side and in many instances disadvantaging half the country in connection therewith. Ben Weingarten, fr uh, Weingarten from Real Clear Investigations. The project is a guide to politicized capitalism. You can get more information at realclearinvestigations.com. Ben, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, joining me today. I do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. Uh, realclearinvestigations.com. All right, thanks again to Ben Weingarten from Real Clear Investigations. Real Clear Investigations Guide to Politicized Capitalism. It's at their website, realclearinvestigations.com. Uh, then there's Peter Flaherty. We, uh, we had him lined up, and I guess uh, it just it didn't happen. But um, he had a piece at Newsweek 
So I'm going to go ahead and bring you some of the highlights because it connects here with BlackRock. And uh, he wrote a piece, an opinion piece in Newsweek titled BlackRock Invests in Censorship. Um, and Peter Flaherty is the chairman of an organization called the National Legal and Policy Center, or the NLP. He's the chair. And they have started doing something that organizations on the left have been doing for a very long time, which is uh, they get shares of companies. They then get to the annual shareholder meetings and they start running proposals. And there are very strict rules on how to get a proposal heard by a board of directors and the shareholders at an annual meeting. And so once you learn those rules, you can then if essentially uh, push issues in front of everybody else in the shareholder meeting. And that's what the left has been doing. And so these things now, they, they come up in the shareholder meetings. And it forces the board to address it or to listen to them. Or at the very least, it advances a storyline. So the NLPC is now doing this, but from the right. Right? So this is what the, they did a proposal. They asked the, um, they asked the company, Google, Alphabet actually, the parent uh, company, to provide a report that would be updated semi-annually, so twice a year, and publish it on the website, and it would disclose requests that came from the President of the United States, the Executive Office, or the CDC, or any other agency or entity of the U.S. government that asked Google to take down or remove material from its platform. That was the proposal, that you have to give us a report twice a year of any government efforts to remove material from Google. The, um, the resolution was a response to concerns that the Biden administration was essentially suborning censorship via these social media platforms. And what the NLPC suggests is that this is a violation, Flaherty writes at Newsweek, this is a violation of the Supreme Court's 1963 ruling in Sullivan, in the Sullivan case. Um, and this goes to the heart of this quote, well, they're a private company, they can do whatever they want, right? N- not really. Not really. So the proposal itself lost very badly, okay? So it, it, it did not get approved by the Google parent company board of directors, of course not, right? Because one of those voting shares, right, was BlackRock. Voted against it. And they own a lot of shares. They talked against it, right? So there is um, there is a component here, this idea that, well, it's a private company, so Google and uh, Alphabet, its parent company, you know, uh, uh, they're not actually, or they're allowed to do the censorship. It's not the government that's doing it. But that's not necessarily the case because as detailed by the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is a co-plaintiff in a lawsuit that's been brought by the Attorneys General of Missouri uh, and Louisiana against the Biden administration, they submit that an army of federal censorship bureaucrats across at least 11 federal agencies were mobilized and exerted tremendous pressure on social media companies. And this would be a violation of that Sullivan case from 1963 
that prohibits private entities from engaging in suppression of speech at the behest of government. Because the court said that it has the same effect as direct government censorship. The, the government forcing you to censor is the same as the government censoring. So, the Biden administration's censorship push is ironic, Flaherty writes, given that the CDC and the National Institutes of Health regularly transmitted disinformation regarding COVID, right? They obscured its origins. <laughs> they, uh, uh, they pushed the shutdowns despite their destructi- uh, destructive effects. They ignored evidence about the ineffectiveness of masking. Right? The president himself wrongly claimed that you cannot get COVID if you've been vaccinated. And that COVID is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Right, The president, who got COVID twice and has been boosted like 17 times now. Right, Flaherty says they expected Alphabet and Google, they expected them to uh, oppose this effort. Right, um, But why would BlackRock... Right? Why would BlackRock wade into this? Why would that organization and the CEO, Larry Fink, uh, who's become enormously wealthy under our system of freedom and rule of law, why would he vote to undermine free speech and support violations of the law like that? Why would, why would BlackRock do that? That's the question that he's asking now. And I think we know why. Ben Garten, uh, Weingarten uh, examined some of those very reasons, right? There's another uh, component. The Business Roundtable. Weingarten went over this. It's a group of uh, consists of CEOs of America's leading companies. They oversee a total of 20 million employees. That's $9 trillion in annual revenue. And when they redefined the purpose of a corporation, they set this, this, uh, this ball in motion. You got the financial services industry. It exerts outsized influence over the global economy. Right, The big three asset managers, as Weingarten went over, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, they dominate woke capital with total collective assets of more than $20 trillion. That is about the size of America's entire GDP. And together, they own more than 20% of the average S&P 500 company. A fifth of the average company on the S&P. Largely on account of this push for ESG today... Over $18 trillion, or about a third of funds under professional management, are invested using ESG and related criteria. I've had financial uh, managers tell me they, they can't find stuff that doesn't follow the criteria. You go out and you try to find uh, asset management firms, you try to find products and vehicles, and everyone is falling in line to this stuff. Where do you go? Andy Puzder, he is the... Uh, former CEO of uh, uh, Carl's Jr., the burger joint, you know? Um, and he, he advises people to go to their local banks. Go to the local institutions, put their money in those local institutions. You're going to have far more control uh, and input uh, with your local uh, financial institutions than you would with these large investment firms that are basically using your money. Now, I also don't know whether or not we're going to see uh, any move by the General Assembly or uh, the State Treasurer, Dale Falwell, to follow in line with other uh, managers of the state employee pension funds to see if they start pushing back on this. Because I, I, I don't see any way that this gets better uh, without that kind of pushback. 
But what do I know, right? I'm just a radio host. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Alrighty, so we're hanging out here at the Mallard Creek Barbecue. It's over now. Please, please, people. No more. Which they, All the lines are gone. The traffic is all cleared. They ran out of the barbecue, as all good barbecue places do. Um, but one of the things about this event, uh, it's always been a hallmark of it, besides the barbecue, obviously. It's the candidates for office. Uh, and they come out, and they, uh, they meet people, they talk politics, and they talk issues with people while they're waiting on their queue. And one of the fellows that's been out here all day long, I've been staring at you the whole time, because you were right there, like 30 feet away, doing fist bumps and handing out uh, your palm cards to everybody. Ross Monks, running for County Commission District 1. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Pete. Absolutely. So uh, tell us a little bit about you and why you're running for this District 1 race. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We've lived in Huntersville for the last nine years. Um, I was still working up until two years ago, retired, uh, and had the opportunity to get more involved in the community, learn more about what's going on at at the county level, at the school board level, attend some of the meetings. uh, and, And what I saw was what I believe to be a lack of process rigor, a lack of uh, applying business best practices to solve problems. I didn't see any strategic planning and management tools in place. These, these are very dangerous things you're saying for uh, for a political body. You realize that. If you're going to apply these types of... I mean, I don't even know what those things are that you said, but I know there was a... Years ago, there was a city councilman named Don Lockman very successful businessman, and he said words like you're saying right now. And city staff was they were very worried about dealing with him. So I, I think when you, when you carefully explain what they are, they're very empowering for folks. So if part of that process is agreeing on what is the objective, and all the objectives have to be quantified with metrics. If you're waving your hands in the air and you're talking big picture and you can't define the challenge metrically, how can you develop an action plan and how can you gauge your success in that action plan? And and the empowering part is all the stakeholders get involved in determining what is the objective, where are we headed, where is our alignment. And once we agree on that, we quantify it, put action plans together, and we march toward it. Is it possible that the action plan is not necessary because the entire objective is just to spend the money? Um, that shouldn't be the objective. <laughs> I know it's very cynical, but look, I, I've, I've, I used to be a reporter here. I covered the city council, county commission, school board, state legislature. And I got to tell you, there are a lot of people in elected position. They don't really have any other objective except to be in that elected position. And the way they keep that elected position is by giving the money to a lot of the nonprofits that sort of set up uh, this little whole cottage industry that live off of the grant processes. So if that's the objective, that's what I say. These things you're saying can be very uh, threatening to people. So... At the end of the day, I think we have to define what it is we're trying to accomplish. And, and I'll tell you, Pete, I've, I've knocked almost 7,000 doors in North Mech, and I've had probably 1,000 conversations, because typically you get 12 to 15% of the folks actually answer the door when the seven-foot bald guy shows up. Yeah. Um, and Those dang ring doorbells. <laughs> <laughs> 
And and what the uh, what the folks are are telling me is they want us to get back to basics, and that's the great thing about a county commission position. It's it's really not ideological. It's very tactical. So we're responsible for funding the schools. Mm-hmm. We're responsible for funding the sheriff's department. We're responsible for setting the mill rate on property taxes. Mm-hmm. We are one of two counties in the state of North Carolina where your county commission is also your board of health. Mm-hmm. So we direct the priorities of the board of health. Now, we also do things like parks and rec, um, health and human services, building inspections. But in my mind, the first four functions are the most important, and that's what I'm hearing from the people that they want us to get focused on. And I'm also hearing from folks, they want to be listened to, and when they call their representatives, they want a return call or a return email. And listen, I'm retired. I've got nothing but time, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm, I'm looking to provide that kind of responsive servant leadership for the first district. You're a Republican? I am. Okay. Um, what does the district look like, the partisan breakdown? Uh, do you know what the numbers look like for you, and how many doors do you actually have to knock on to make that happen? Yeah, so um, as I say to people, had I understood the demographics from an RD standpoint before I got into this, I probably would have thought about it a little bit longer. But it is, I, I don't know if we've talked. Uh, I'm a, I'm a Ranger qualified former army officer veteran of the, of the first gulf war so i'm not afraid of fights with long odds right but these are long odds right it's it's 46 percent based on if you look at the uh voter turnout from the 18 general and the 20 general it's roughly 46 democrat 25 percent republican and 29 percent unaffiliated mm-hmm. so obviously I have got to sway Democrats who are uh, thirsty for a more business-minded approach to government. Uh, I've got to sway virtually all the unaffiliateds, and I've got to turn the Republicans out. Mm. So how's it going? So it's been, again, my first campaign. I have nothing to compare it to. Yeah. Uh, We've had great success in raising money. We've had great success in uh, reaching out to other folks who who like what we're saying, who like the common sense business approach. And again, it's not ideological. Having your third graders being able to read at a third grade level is not a D or an R thing. It is not a rich or a poor thing. It's not a racial thing. It is the right thing. How do you how do you do that? What's the what's the answer? How do you get third graders to read? So at the end of the day, the the, the biggest lesson that that I took out of my military experience and my business experience is servant leadership, and and the first part of servant leadership is understanding that the only way you resolve challenges is you have to go out to where the work is being done, and you have to talk to the people who are doing the work. At the end of the day, they best understand the challenge, and they've also got the keys to the solution. So you as a leader need to pull all those stakeholders together, listen, Pareto out the different responses you get, because if you talk to enough people, you're going to see trends, and then facilitate the problem-solving process, marshal the resources at the disposal of the county commission, and get us focused on the objective. Hasn't that already been done? I mean, th- th- this is, these problems have been going on for a very long time. And it hasn't. They, they they haven't been corrected. We've identified them. The stakeholders. I've been through all of those meetings for twenty years in Charlotte Mecklenburg. So we already know the things that have been done that don't work, and things that do work. Nobody really is interested because there's no price tag attached to it. Things like you know, if you want to be out of poverty, you know, you you finish high school, you have a job, and you 
don't have kids before you get married and wait till after you graduate. Like these are the, but, the, but there's no role for government in any of those things. Those are all sort of a societal, cultural thing. And you, how do you move people away from a, a culture that celebrates criminality versus education? That, that's not... What does, what does a county commission do or a school board or a state legislature? Like these are, these are things that are at a, at a community level versus a, uh, a government level, no? Right. Uh, now, what we have to focus on in all those issues you raised, and you just, you just stacked up a bunch of issues. I did. Um, leading Your tractor has arrived here. Yes. Did you order a tractor? Yeah, that is my John Deere. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. So, anyway, so I stacked up all these issues for you. Go ahead. The number one leading indicator of every one of those issues is third grade reading proficiency. Absolutely. Because at the, up until third grade, we're learning how to read. From third grade on, we have to read to be able to learn. So we need to focus like a laser beam on that objective. So when the U.S. military is successful, it's when we have 100% mission focus. Mm Mm-hmm. We are focused on one objective. So Desert Storm was a great example of that. Clearly defined objective. We are going to drive the Iraqi army out of the country of Kuwait. Everybody was focused on that mission. Everyone understood what the objective was. And most importantly, everybody understood what their piece of the mission was. And they knew what the criteria of success was for their particular sector sketch, right? And and that that's what we've got to do. We've got to focus. We have a mission focus, and we've got to get decisively engaged. If we are all pulling in the same direction, that the number one objective of the county commission, of the school board, is, and of the city council, and the city commissions, and the town commissions all throughout the county, if that becomes our number one objective, I refuse to believe that we can't achieve it. Well, we shall see. I appreciate you sitting down with me, Ross Monks. He's running for County Commission District 1. Uh, you got a website you want to tell folks to go check out, or are you yeah. on Facebook? Go ahead. A- absolutely. Monks, the number 4, commissioner.com. That's M-O-N-K-S, the number 4, commissioner.com. And then on Facebook, it's Monks, the number 4, commissioner. All right. Best of luck on the campaign trail. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Pete. All right. Take appreciate care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. A reminder, Talktoberfest is tonight at 8 o'clock. Got Brett Winterbull, got Bo Thompson, got Beth Troutman. They're all going to be participating in tonight's activities. Presented by Kristen Bernard and Power Home Team. Keller Williams South Park. Go to the Facebook page tonight or go to WBT.com for all of the details. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a live stream. You get to, it's a, basically, it's like an Ask Me Anything kind of event. It's a lot of fun. Uh, let me see here. This is, uh, sure, we'll get Jim on here. Hello, Jim. Welcome to the program. How are you? Great, Pete. Good afternoon. Real quick, Good afternoon. Ross, the, uh, the guy running for commissioner, great interview with him. Your cynicism was uh, spot on. <laughs> he's, he's, he's trying to bring business metrics, objectives, discipline to the county commission. He doesn't stand a chance. That's right. <laughs> right? I hate to be... Yeah, I, well, yeah let, let, let's call it uh, realistically skeptical. Uh, I don't want to yeah. be. Uh, I don't want to be overly pessimistic and uh, and, and and crush the spirits. Uh, I but know. I mean, that's no, why it's go- like it's always good guy. to talk. Yeah, he, he did. He came. He, he sounds like a very nice guy, and uh, uh, it's always good to get new blood into the system because um, 
they still think that they can change things. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. Real, real quick, the reason I called uh, was on the ESG topic that you're covering in another segment. Thanks yeah. for bringing it up again. You're talking about Larry Fink and BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard and all that. And I, I didn't hear, did you, did you tie Larry Fink to the World Economic Forum? I think he's on their board of trustees or something. That, it's, this thing is global, as you know, and uh, we don't know half of it. I mean, it's, it's ugly. Uh, but I didn't know if you had brought the world economic forum into the equation yet. I did not. Uh, I appreciate that. Also, this is, uh, and I heard um, Andy Puzder uh, talked about this a couple weeks back. He was on uh, Brett Winnable's show, actually, and I uh, was talking with Coach Doherty and, and uh, Brett about uh, the connection also with the, the social credit score system that China right. is implementing. Oh and my this God. is, yeah. yeah, and this is the, this is the parallel. The, these, yeah, and this I know what it sounds like to people who may not have any kind of exposure to these concepts. I recognize how it sounds, but these are not my ideas. These are not my no, plans. No. These are what they no. came up with, and they have forums and they discuss this stuff out in the open. Yep, if, and if you and I dial the clock back, the calendar back five, ten years, and we talked about this, people would say we're conspiracy nuts. But folks, it's happening. It's out there. It's yeah. coming. Yeah, I would say I was a conspiracy nut. I would say that. (laughs) I appreciate the call, Jim. All right. Thanks, Pete. All right. Take care. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm, look, I'm, I always say I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of a guy, and I'm not. Usually, you know, I'm an Occam's razor kind of guy. The most obvious explanation, the easiest thing to explain. That's usually the case, right? That's usually the truth. And um, in this case, the easiest, most obvious explanation is the one that they're telling me. (laughs) <laughs> they have these big events, and they invite all their friends. They they fly on their uh, private jets to some remote place, uh, and then they talk about climate change and how we're all going to be underwater because everyone's flying their jets to the remote places. And uh, and and yeah, and they they do these presentations and they talk about how they're going to change people's behaviors through these programs, and they're going to change the way businesses do business and that sort of thing. Well, here you go. This is another way. Um, this was from a website called Relevant Data. Uh, guy write, uh, the guy who writes it is Josh Stevenson. And he says, It's no secret that political polarization within our country has affected policy response to the pandemic. The first year of the pandemic was smack in the middle of an election where every single issue facing the nation was portrayed as a this versus that, or us versus them, left versus right. Public health messaging was appropriated by politicians for the purpose of making political promises, right? And Trump did this too, by the way, and I'm not trying to uh, poke at, uh, at Trump supporters, but he did the same thing, right? He said, we're going to get rid of it, we're going to whip it before the uh, Christmas or whatever, we're going to have the vaccines, and you could say he was right, but those were po- he's making these predictions, just like people on the left were predicting the other direction, right? And they were applying pressure in the other direction. And now we find out, right, that there was uh, efforts to uh, to withhold the rollout of the vaccines until after the election, right? Political calculations. Politicians on both sides made bold claims about their policies' effects on the pandemic. And the bureaucracies within the federal and state governments were oftentimes left to either pick up the pieces or left carrying the flag of the official messaging of the executive administrations so they would have to align their policies with the political goals the appropriate role of public health 
a political advisory driven by research and data, right? That was almost completely dismantled. We suffered uh, the most from this political polarization. The, the ones who suffered the most were the kids. He goes on to talk about the lockdown of the schools. He says that the science and the research on the risks of open schools had corroborated a couple simple facts very early on that schools were not responsible for community spread. Schools could operate in person safely, even during periods of high community spread. And burdensome mitigations actually had little to no effect upon transmission within the schools. Right? We have we have even more uh, proof of this now. So why did we allow the schools to close? Answering the question is critical to preventing collateral damage to the kids. And a new paper from Brown University explores the evidence and sums up in their research findings. They say, quote, Contrary to the conventional understanding of school districts as localized and nonpartisan actors, we find evidence that politics, far more than science, shaped school district decision-making. Mass partisanship and teacher union strength best explain how school boards approached reopening. Winterbull's up next. Don't break anything while I'm gone.